Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, June 28th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The 1970s series In Search Of is back, hosted by Zachary Quinto this time. We will explore the mysterious, the unexplained, the supernatural, the large and hairy... A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. Ah, yes, Bigfoot. No way to prove if he does or doesn't exist, although when they plowed over the original forest he was said to live in to make a subdivision, they didn't find any giant ape bones. They did find a Portland Trailblazers costume left in a shed. So the new host, Zachary Quinto, shouldn't it be Quinto? Anyway, Quinto, he wants to update it, he told Stephen Colbert. We're in search of, uh, well, the, you know, the original show was great in its own way. Leonard would often appear in a turtleneck and a blazer in a studio and say, good evening and welcome to In Search Of. And then- the Leonard you heard reference to there and heard actually speaking in the original clip, that's Leonard Nimoy, who did host the original In Search Of. A number of the astronauts who would travel to the moon brought back stories of special perceptions they had in space. But wait, 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 wait a minute. Zachary Quinto is best known for playing Spock in the new Star Trek, a role, of course, created by Leonard Nimoy. So what is going on? You play a guy in a reboot and you get to take over all his old gigs? I mean, Donald Glover played Lando Calrissian in Solo. Billy D. Williams played Lando Calrissian in the original Star Wars series. And of course, Billy D. Williams also endorsed Colt 45. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rule number one, never run out of Colt 45. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. So I guess we'll see Donald Glover for malt liquor pretty soon. And then there was Ricardo Montalban, who played Khan. We could look forward to, I guess, Benedict Cumberbatch endorsing the Chrysler New Yorker's rich Corinthian leather. I'm sorry if I'm doing a horrible, insulting accent, but what I was really trying to do was Benedict Cumberbatch doing a horrible, insulting accent. Mark Wahlberg, he took over Charlton Heston's role in that Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, so maybe soon he'll take over the NRA. Hey, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'll tell you when you pull that gun from my cold, dead hands, bro. So it all could happen, except for the fact that I guess Zach Quinto didn't actually play the same Spock that Leonard Nimoy played. It was an alternative universe Spock. So I guess the entire premise is based on a willful misunderstanding. On the show today, I spiel about authenticity and perhaps who will be the newest member of Congress. But first, they exist on the earth, but they're not clearly delineated on a map, though some of the people who live there would like them to be. They're invisible countries. A talk with Josh Keating next. So the UN counts, I don't know, what is it, 195 or so countries in the world, FIFA, a lot more than that, because, you know, Scotland gets its own country. But there are a bunch of countries that no one counts, except perhaps themselves. And every once in a while, one other nation, like Micronesia, will say, yeah, you're a country. What are these countries doing? What are they thinking? Joshua Keating went to find out. The name of the book is Invisible Countries, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood. Hello, Josh. How are you? 
Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So was there one country that got you thinking about uh, the broader the broader issue? Well, I actually started thinking about this um, quite a long time ago when uh, Kosovo declared independence and there was dispute over who was going to recognize it. The U.S. did, Russia didn't, and got me sort of thinking about how it can be sort of arbitrary who gets to be a country. I mean, there are uh, definitions in international law. There are sociologists who have tried to pin this down. But, it, you know, it is a little tricky and basically – what decides whether something's a country or not is whether other countries recognize it as so. So um, I was interested in exploring some of the places that are maybe exceptions to the rules, places that meet all our normal criteria for statehood, but for one reason or another are not considered countries by the rest of the world. Well, these days we do have the United Nations, and when they allow you in, that confers countryhood. I remember when South Sudan became a country, and that occasion wasn't just South Sudan saying we're a country, it was, well, the rest of Sudan recognizing it, but also its admission into the United Nations. Yeah, the UN has become kind of the gold standard for what defines a country. Another place I went to for the book is Abkhazia, which is the breakaway region of Georgia, which mm -hmm. is recognized by Russia and a handful of other countries uh, like uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela and Nauru. And as of a month ago, uh, since I wrote the book, uh, Syria recognizes it as well. Okay, I get three of those. The <laughs> Russians want to screw with the Georgians. I get why uh, the Venezuelans and the Nicaraguans, uh, you know, pretty Marxist governments that are uh, aligned with the old USSR. What's Nauru doing in there? Yeah, so there's an interesting kind of market in uh, country recognition that happens where, you know, in return for development assistance, you know, some of these countries will, you know, align themselves with one or another. You know, you see this with Taiwan a lot. Uh, one of the places I went to is Kiribati, uh, mm -hmm. which is another small island country in the Pacific. And everywhere you go in Kiribati, there's, you know, evidence of Taiwanese investment. There's agricultural projects. There's, you know, this building brought to you by the people of Taiwan. And lo and behold, Kiribati just happens to be one of the few countries that, uh, recognizes Taiwan. Nauru is just totally shameless. They're one of the only countries that uh, both has diplomatic relationships with Beijing and with Taiwan. And they're, they recognize Kosovo and Abkhazia as well, which is, <laughs> which is another divide. So Nauru is uh, pretty easy to get on your side. I once covered a Nauru weightlifting team for the Olympics, and I, th I think I met a third of the population of Nauru in that small room. Yeah, well, sports are interesting. The, the kind of centerpiece of the book, which I begin and end with, was with the World Cup going on right now, they, there's, a, there's another event called the World Football Cup, which mm. is sponsored by an organization called Kanifa. The reason I was in Abkhazia in 2016 was to attend this tournament, which is a, a soccer World Cup for countries that can't get admitted into FIFA. And you, you mentioned at the top that uh, FIFA already admits a number of countries that aren't UN member states, but there are places they won't admit either. So, you know, places like Somaliland and Kurdistan and Abkhazia, uh, they have to play in this kind of uh, second tier tournament. And it was a really strange and incredible event and uh, sort of alternative version of what the map of the world could look like. What are there are general categories of invisible countries, right? There are breakaway mm -hmm. countries. There are well, this is more common than not ethnic enclaves that felt yep. that they were absorbed into other countries. What are the big categories? Yeah, well, you have you have the sort of semi-autonomous countries that I mean, under international law, a country is a place with 
defined borders, as our president says, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, Mm -hmm. a government, a permanent population, and the capacity to enter into relations with other states. So So it's that third one that's kind of subjective. (laughs) Yeah. So there are places that meet those criteria that are not recognized. There are places that don't really meet those criteria that are recognized as countries. Then you have sort of places like Tibet and Xinjiang in China, which are where there's sort of separatist sentiment, but you know they're they're not even close to meeting the criteria and statehood, and are in a very and are in a very different situation than something like Taiwan, which, for all intents and purposes, the U.S. treats Taiwan like it would treat any independent country, but you know has to pretend that it's not right. But it seems like Taiwan's a little different. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is just because as an American, I grew up, you know, thinking Taiwan's a country, whereas the rest of the world doesn't. But it seems like most of these other countries, there was a country and there were people within this established country saying, no, what about us? Or we want to break away or you never asked us. But whereas with Taiwan, there was not always a Taiwan, but there was a longstanding country of Taiwan until one day China said, no, you're not a country, <laughs> as opposed to Taiwan saying, uh, positively asserting, yes, we are a country. Uh, I mean, it depends. You know, like Kurdistan, that region has never been fully independent, but has always been culturally distinctive and has for a long, long time sought independence. You know, they generally refer to themselves as the largest nation without a state in the world. In other words, the largest sort of ethnic group that doesn't have a country associated with it. Kurdistan's interesting to me because in many of these countries, we're talking about poor countries, you know, developing, charitably calling them developing countries. And we're talking about enclaves within those countries that aren't on the leading edge of development. If anything, you know, I don't know if Somaliland is doing appreciably better than its surrounding countries. But with Kurdistan, uh, Kurdistan, the Kurdistan region of Iraq is probably the most successful. And no place in Syria is good, but what the Kurdistan part of Syria would be would Mm -hmm. probably be fine. And if you take out Istanbul from Turkey, if you just talk about the eastern part of Turkey, which is far behind Istanbul in development, it seems that the Kurdish regions would be the most developed, but are there any others like that where the uh, the breakaway or the, uh, hey, we want to be a country crowd is appreciably more developed than the country they want to break away from? Sure. Catalonia is uh, one of the wealthiest regions of Spain. It may be the wealthiest region of Spain. And I, I think that that is a sort of interesting distinction that's developed as we traditionally think of, you know, breakaway territories as oppressed enclaves victimized by the rest of the state. And in many cases, that's true. But you also have have examples, as you mentioned, where it's sort of wealthier parts of the country, like Catalonia, that don't really want their wealth redistributed to the rest of Spain. Yeah, I didn't even think of Catalonia because I've pushed them out of my mind. I hate that story. I have no sympathy for them. I've called them <laughs> I've called them the Staten Island of Europe. <laughs> Why are we paying all these taxes for the cuz right. you're part of a country, a part of a city. Shut up. They also have their own language in Staten Island. Yeah, exactly. That's true. And then and, but their greatest cultural export is the Wu-Tang Clan and with Catalonia it's I don't know. I don't know who it would be. America has has one in fact, in the state that uh, I live in and that you used to live in, New York. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean I'd say the more active ones are California. There was the sort of 
question of the uh, Cal exit referendum question. Yeah. Uh, this is always sort of Texas secessionism. Uh, actually, those have kind of been given a bad name by the sort of extensive evidence that, uh, you know, Russian um, disinformation campaigns and trolls have been promoting these movements. Not that it was a, they had much chance to begin with. Few new countries or border adjustments happen anymore, and the the map of the world seems sort of locked in place. And um, I think you know there's there's room for sort of some more creative thinking, and we don't have to assume that the map of the world is is uh, necessarily ideal the way it is. But um, you know, there's also good given the number of people who are killed in conflicts over territory in years past. The fact that uh, this period of stasis I'm talking about is also a period where interstate war, war between different sovereign states over territory uh, has become pretty rare. I, I think the fact that those two things are happening at the same time is not a coincidence. Now, most of what we've been talking about are large groups of people who identify uh, ethnically with each other. But then there's, what is it, Liberland? Mm. Yeah, these guys, these guys have gotten in touch with me over the years, invited me over. They say they have a really nice flag. It's okay. It's okay. But well, did you go there? I didn't go to Liberland, but I witnessed the inauguration of Donald Trump with in the delegation of the president of Liberland, who was in D.C. Uh, showing the flag, literally. It's, a, it's very hard to go there at the moment. Croatia and Serbia um, have – there's this patch of land that neither country wants. They both want uh, some territory further up. By some accounts, it's terra nullius, meaning there's there's no state that claims it. And so a state has claimed it. A, a libertarian politician from the Czech Republic named Vit Jedlička uh, went there and planted a flag and uh, declared that it would be a, a new libertarian state that has – uh, you know, voluntary taxation and, and direct democracy and in this tiny little patch of land on a riverbank in the Balkans. They've had some difficulty actually making it work, mostly because Croatia is now denying them access. But I have applied for citizenship. I will say they have not yet, <laughs> they have not yet granted me citizenship. Um, I possibly because I haven't contributed to the development of Liberland. Which of your countries has the best flag, would you say? I, I really like Kiribati, which is the, the oh, last yeah. country. But I that's went to. but that's a real country. I mean, well, okay, that's not so, really debated as an invisible nation, is it? <laughs> well, okay, no, it's not. Although it's quite small and and yes. uses the currency of another country. And but the reason I went to Kiribati is that it's one of the countries that's most threatened by sea level rise, yes. and there's a serious concern that the actual islands of Kiribati may not be uh, inhabitable in a few decades. And so uh, the sort of question I was interested in there is, you know, whether a country can continue to exist as a political unit if the territory it's associated with no longer does. But beautiful flag. Uh, I got one for my father-in-law who's flying it proudly in Hamden, Connecticut now. So. Yeah, it's the beauty. It's it's a little busy, <laughs> but it has a nice soaring bird over a uh, sunrise, I choose to interpret it, though it can be a, yeah. a sunset. We, fl we fly that proudly in our home. Invisible Countries is the name of the book, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood. Josh Keating is the author. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> And now the spiel, Alexandria 
Ocasio-Cortez, truly one of the more interesting stories, one of the more interesting people to hit national politics in quite some time. Though I think if we actually were to just open the doors to highly accomplished people under 40, we'd see a lot of good and interesting things happen. Now, I am over 40, so it's not self-serving, though I am interesting and qualified. But there is certainly a youth deficit in politics, not in political activism, not in passion, but actually elected politicians. As Facebook has come to represent the most dominant force in public life, and as Congress is asked to regulate Facebook, and increasingly, as Facebook is determining elections to put people in Congress and the White House, I think it might be a good thing to have some powerful people whose relationship with Facebook is something other than, wait, what's the difference between Messenger and the like button? You know, a net native, or at least someone who knows what the hell they're talking about. If Congress were as ignorant on banking law as it is on the internet, Okay, bad example, because we might actually have better banking law, but here's a better one. If Congress were as clueless on military procurement as it is on the internet, and by the way, the internet can be weaponized, I would say that if that were the case, the F-22 Raptor might be the fighter jet equivalent of a dial-up modem. So youth is good. Youth is good. Smart youth is better. Ocasio-Cortez seems to be quite smart. Turns out when she submitted her high school microbiology project in 2007 to Intel Science and Engineering Fair and was awarded second place, with that award came an asteroid. She has an asteroid named after her. She's Latina. Congress is right now, I think it has 38 members who are Hispanic. And since the country is 14% Hispanic, that's about half of what it should be. And she's a woman. Good to have more women in Congress. All good, 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 good. However, there is a word associated with her that I think is as of yet undeserved. And so all of a sudden we see a dynamic, accessible, relevant 28-year-old woman who can connect with people. And so voila, she's going to the United States Congress. And I just but want to say she about it, she is authentic. She has a rare authenticity that you just don't see in many politicians in Washington. But will she get States. chewed up by the system? She is authentic. She's aspirational. She's optimistic. So that from MSNBC, authentic. She's authentic. We don't know if she's authentic yet, do we? That clip was from yesterday. People were just learning her name. She has charisma. She seems different and exciting, but authentic? Does she stick to her guns? Does she live her principles? I mean, we just heard what her principles are. Can't really judge if she lives them or if she will when she's an actual legislator. There are a couple of things going on with a claim of authenticity. The first is that authenticity seems to be a real thing, but it's not. Inauthenticity, I think that's a real thing. You can pretty much show that someone is inauthentic if they say lie, or if they're two-faced, or if they're a hypocrite, then you are inauthentic. But simply not being a hypocrite doesn't mean being authentic. I happen not to think authenticity means much, very much in the eye of the beholder, and it's very hard to lay an accurate claim to authenticity. Any restaurant that claims an authentic type of cuisine, Thai, Filipino, Ethiopian, you can always get an actual Thai, Filipino, or Ethiopian person to come in there and say, ah, this isn't authentic. Now, some people will tell you that what authentic means is like out there or wacky. Kathy Griffin, I think, benefits from this. She's very authentic. I don't know. I think she's just a little, you know, crazy. Maybe it's a calculated crazy. I don't know if she's authentic. Ben Shapiro on his podcast defined authenticity in the Ocasio-Cortez context this way. Yeah, that sort of righteous indignation is now what animates the Democratic Party. Uh, it makes the Democratic Party 
feel special. It makes them feel as though they are authentic. This is one of the big problems in American politics generally right now, and this is true right and left, is that people are mistaking decency for insincerity. That if you are a decent person and you don't want to go after people hammer and tongs and you are not demonstrating sufficient passion, that means that you are not authentic. Really authentic people are people who can't keep their emotions in check. If you're truly authentic, you're the kind of person who pounds the table, right? You're the kind of person who looks across at your opponent and yells at them. That's true authenticity. And that's how we know that you're a decent, authentic person and you're not just a political phony is the more you yell and the more you scream and the more emotional you are, the more we believe that you're an authentic human being. I don't think that's right either. Authentic means, in terms of U.S. politics, it it means something like willing to say things that upset your own party or that upset the establishment. So there's a mavericky quality to authenticity. That, by the way, can be very self-serving. It became, you know, John McCain's brand and Sarah Palin's brand to be the maverick. It also means not pandering and not compromising. But I think compromise is a good thing. I'll be an authentic Democrat, you be an authentic Republican, and we'll work together and authentically pass some legislation that will help some authentic Americans. But if we're working together, ooh, that's not authentic. We, we gave in and we gave up some of our principles. The guy who Ocasio-Cortez defeated, Joe Crowley, I think he was authentic. He was just an authentically middle-aged white Irish guy, and she's authentically a 28-year-old Hispanic woman. I can prove that they were both being authentic, I will now play the lightning round of their one New York, one debate. What's the best restaurant in the district? Yeah, well, my opinion, I love Daisy's on, in Sunnyside on, on, on Queens Boulevard. Okay. I like Taqueria Talaxcali in Starling Ave. Okay, very good. I checked the Yelp page for Taqueria Talaxcali, by the way. Here is the third review that was prominently posted. It came here for lunch yesterday afternoon. I'm so happy I did. My brother, his girlfriend, and my mom, and I came here for an authentic Mexican meal. I don't know if it was authentic. I will say it was probably more authentic than the fajitas at Daisy's. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Their favorite minimalist Javier Bardem feature film, Invisible Country for Old Men. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's not sitting there in silence. No, he's listening to invisible country music. The gist marketing a zero-calorie beverage that I call Invisible Country Time Lemonade. It's not really a beverage, just thinking about drinking a beverage. But it's zero calories. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.